If you have a Bible with you, if you'll open up to 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10 is where we'll be in our time together in God's Word. The title of the sermon this morning is Great Gain, Great Gain, and you'll see that there in your outline if you are taking notes this morning, and then we're going to spend a little time here in this passage. It's a familiar passage, and I think it's an appropriate passage for us to gather our hearts and our minds on as we consider the end of the year, as we consider our finances, as we consider contentment as we consider what really matters in life, that we can get so wrapped up in temporal things, and that we want to make sure we're focusing on that, which is eternal. And so here we are about what is the true meaning of great gain, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. Here's what Paul writes. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful again to be together here in this place to worship you as our great God and our King. We're thankful that we could uh, come and sing songs and hear the scriptures read and now proclaimed. We pray that you would create in us a heart of humility a heart of desperation to be in your presence where we alone can find fullness of joy. So we pray that today you would teach us about contentment, what it is, what it isn't, how to find it. And I pray that you would work in our hearts in a special way as we wrap up 2023 and as we look forward to 2024. May we be a church that's growing together in our love for you and our love for each other. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, some of you may remember the interview by Tom Brady after he won his third Super Bowl ring back in 2005. For those of you who aren't sports fans, he was like the greatest quarterback ever who played for the New England Patriots for most of his career. And after he won that third Super Bowl ring, he was being interviewed and he was asked about his career and his life up to this point. His answer to that interview was, there's got to be something more. So here's a guy on top of his game, three Super Bowls, married to a, to a model, has got life going for him, and when asked about life, he's got, he said, there's got to be something more than this. After winning his seventh Super Bowl ring years later in 2021, then playing for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, he was asked which ring was his favorite. He answered, the next one. So have you ever noticed how hard it is to achieve contentment in this life? You're always looking for the next one. You always need one more thing, one more gift, one more something in order to make life really be rounded out. Human nature is just screaming out just a little bit more. I mean, how about you opening your Christmas gifts this year? Maybe you opened a gift and you're all, this is perfect. And then your sibling opened a bigger better gift. And you're like, well, how come I didn't get that? 
You know, if you're not careful, you can just struggle with this, right? How about buying new clothes? You know, you get a new shirt, then you realize you need a new pair of jeans to go with your shirt, and then you need a belt, and a new pair of shoes would be nice. How about that new hat? I need a new puffer jacket. Come on, I mean, it's like you can never stop. You just keep adding to it. How about decorating your house? You need those new hardwood floors, and then you need new lighting, and then you need some type of new paint on the wall, some new furniture, a new accent wall. How about some new picture frames or candles or unique decorative items? I mean, that'll really update the room, right? It's just, just need a little bit more. Can you relate? How about the weather? Something as simple as the weather. It's too cool. It's too hot. It's too windy. We really need some rain. Not that much rain. You know, should I put on my coat, take off my coat? I just can't quite get comfortable. Or how many of you guys struggle with this one over the Christmas season? Just the simple volume to the favorite Christmas movie. Turn it up, turn it down, I can't hear it, I want the captions on, I don't want them on, you know, it's just like back and forth. It's so hard sometimes for us to be content. I mean, just one day after Christmas this year, I saw a post that was listed as the 2023 top home finds, the top 10 home finds of 2023. Number 10, a coffee table with a built-in fridge for drinks or snacks. It also doubles as a bedside stand. Number nine, a smart TV that can be viewed horizontally or vertically and even comes on wheels so you can easily move it to whatever room in the house that you need it. Number eight, a paper towel holder that keeps your paper towels dry and clean and then dispenses them with just the wave of a hand, gives you a brand new fresh paper towel. Number seven, an adorable penguin tool, which is a holder for your boiled eggs. It holds six of them and makes them look like little penguins. So cute, you dip it down in the boiling water, you pull it up, you got six little penguins. I mean, who doesn't need that? Number six, a pet dish food set, which conveniently stores your pet food in a perfectly sized cabinet, which is located right under the food bowl. Number five, a vertically, this is my favorite, a vertically designed waffle maker that makes perfect waffles every time with no spillover or messes. Come on, you need that one? I need that one. Okay. Number four, a mirror that doubles as a storage cabinet for makeup, jewelry, and other personal items, which can spin around so that you can access exactly what you need. Number three, this is my wife's favorite, I think, a warming bucket in which you can put in towels or blankets, and they'll be perfectly warm in just five minutes. Number two, a special breakfast grill where you can make bacon, egg, and cheese bagels, which cooks each item separately, and then you remove the dividers, and you have a breakfast sandwich cooked to perfection. And then number one, a self-inflating king-size bed in which you can move easily from room to room. It's the perfect sleeping arrangement for friends or family. And as I was just kind of scrolling through, looking at these 10 top items, I'm like, I need them. I need these. Christmas was not enough. I need at least the waffle maker, all right? At least the waffle maker. I need at least one of these. I just need it. And the point is we all struggle, right? We all struggle with being content and we always will. If we're looking for contentment in things instead of in a person, If we're looking for contentment by being comforted on the outside instead of being completed on the inside, 
then we'll never have enough. If we're looking for contentment by looking at our circumstances instead of looking at Christ, then we will never have enough. You've probably heard of Jeremiah Burroughs, well-known uh, Puritan who wrote his most famous book would be The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Listen to how he defines Christian contentment. He says, it is a sweet inward heart thing. It is a work of the spirit indoors. It is a box of precious ointment, very comforting and useful for troubled hearts in times of troubled conditions. Well, what a great reminder, right? That, that's what we really need in our life. We need Christian contentment. We don't need more stuff. We don't need more things. We, we, we need to find our joy and our satisfaction in knowing Christ. Christian contentment does not come naturally. It comes supernaturally, Contentment is not the byproduct of living a life as a member of a church. It's the byproduct of looking to Jesus as you live your life as a Christian. Christian contentment is not free. It costs you everything because you've got to give up everything else. You've got to give up everything that you own in order to truly find contentment in Christ. Contentment is not something that you work for. It's someone that you rest in. Contentment is not something you earn, it's something you learn by looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, just listen to Philippians 4.11. Not that I am speaking from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances that I'm in. I like that. Paul said he learned to be content. So that's encouraging to me. If Paul, an apostle, had to learn to be content, that means that I too can learn to be content content. Whether I have a little or whether I have a lot, I want to learn how to be content whether I'm full or whether I'm hungry. God, help me to be content if I'm experiencing abundance or if I'm suffering in any way I want to find contentment. And I trust that would be true in your heart this morning. And so as we look at this topic of great gain, I want to give you four truths about being content so that you might experience just that, what the scripture says at the end of verse six, that you might experience great gain. Four truths to help us understand how to receive great gain. Number one, accept that, that godliness with contentment is great gain. We just gotta accept that as a fact. It is well stated in God's word that godliness with contentment is great gain. Just a, a little bit of background on this epistle, 1 Timothy, was written by the Apostle Paul to young Timothy to give him direction of how to be a faithful pastor. And the most important thing about being a God-honoring pastor is to honor God's truth. And so in this epistle, Paul taught Timothy that sound doctrine must be upheld. False teachers must be confronted and mature leadership must be developed. In fact, the theme for this epistle of 1 Timothy 6 is found in the next two verses immediately after our text. Look at them, verses 11 and 12, where it says, this is the theme for the whole epistle of 1 Timothy. It says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight 
of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So we see in those verses that there were false teachers who were actually advocating for a different doctrine that did not agree with the sound words of Jesus Christ. In fact, back earlier in the same chapter, verses 3 through 5, Paul talks about how these false teachers supposed that godliness was a means of gain. So they were exploiting the sheep, trying to make more money based on their religious position. This is a a key hallmark of false teachers, right? They were not truly godly. They didn't even know God. They, They were simply trying to look godly on the outside in their religiosity in order to make money off of those in the church. And so they would ask for and demand special offerings that they would use, not for the Lord's work, but for their own enjoyment and for the furtherance of spreading their false teaching. And so in verse 6, Paul explains the value of true godliness. In a sense, he's saying, your first blank, if you are taking notes, he's just simply saying, be godly. You've got to be godly. You want contentment? It starts with being godly. In verse 6 again, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. The word godliness here means piety or reverence or likeness to God. It could be translated as religion, but in the true sense of the word. It describes true holiness, true spirituality, and true Christian virtue. The Bible actually commands that we be godly, that we be holy, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 48, therefore you are to be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, but like the holy one who called you, be holy yourselves and all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Do you know why God commands that you be godly? Why does he command that you and I be holy? Well, he does so for his own glory But he also commands that for our own good. He knows that if you are pursuing godliness, then you will find contentment. The more godly you are, the more content you are. The more worldly you are, the more misery you will have. More sin equals more misery. More of God in your heart and life equals more contentment. As simple as that. Godly Christians who are pursuing the righteousness of Christ day in and day out ought to be the most content people on earth. Holiness is what leads to your happiness. You cannot be truly happy and be in sin. You may think that you're happy, and we all understand sin has fleeting pleasures, and so temporarily we think we're experiencing the feeling of happiness, but that's not the true happiness of Scripture. That's not true joy. That's not true contentment. It is a counterfeit happiness, a counterfeit joy, and a counterfeit contentment. Don't don't be fooled by the world. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to the right, just a couple of of books across to 1 John. You you know this passage well, but it suits uh, what we're talking about in, in this passage. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, simply says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Guess what? Verse 17 says the world's passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So if we're loving the things of this world, then we are not loving God. And everything in this world, according to 1 John 2, it's passing away. Everything, every desire, everything that's temporal, it is all passing away. But whoever does the will of God will abide forever. It is not worldliness, but godliness, which is the means of great gain. Right? And we forget that. We think somehow, well, worldliness, if I had it all, then I would have everything in life that I want or need. But it's not worldliness that leads to great gain, back to 1 Timothy 6. It's godliness with contentment which produces great gain. Great gain does not come from material possessions, but it comes from spiritual blessings. And you are blessed not by having more things on earth, but you are blessed by having a greater perspective on what you already have in Christ. Like first, uh, or excuse me, Ephesians 1 Verse three says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We already have all that we need. It's found in Christ. We're blessed by being in Christ, by receiving salvation, by knowing God, by knowing Christ, by walking in the spirit. Those are the true blessings and you have every spiritual blessing. You're not, we're not lacking in anything when it comes to the spiritual vitality that God gives us as his sons and his daughters. And so not only do we need to be godly, but with that, we need to be content. Your next blank. We, we need to be content. It's very simple, right? It's godliness with contentment, which is great gain. He's not saying godliness alone is good. I mean, we know it is, but he is adding one thing here. And he's saying, hey, you need to be content with that godliness. It's godliness and contentment in Christ, in the godliness. That's what equals great gain. In other words, it's not good to seek to be godly without having contentment, right? Nobody's asking you to be sheer dutiful in your allegiance to God in a way where you actually hate it. That's not what God's asking for. He's asking for your obedience and he's asking for and even demanding your affection. So it's not good to seek to be godly without contentment. Neither is it good to seek to be content without being godly. If you're seeking to be godly without contentment, then you're emphasizing religion over relationship. And if you're seeking to be content without being godly, then you are emphasizing the physical over the spiritual. The first one leads to legalism and the other one leads to hedonism. So you gotta have these two things together. It's godliness and contentment. Godliness accompanied by contentment is where heaven and earth meet. Godliness with contentment is where feelings and faith come together. Godliness with contentment is where holiness and happiness become a reality. The word contentment here in this verse means self-sufficiency. 
The word was used by the cynic and stoic philosophers of the Greek culture to describe a person who was unflappable, unmoved by outside circumstances and who properly reacted to his or her environment. To be content in these terms means to be satisfied and sufficient and to seek nothing more than what one has. That would be, you know, from a secular point of view. But for the Christian, it's more than that, right? For the Christian, it's unlike the the Greek philosophy. The Christian seeks contentment in God, not in self, but in God, and seeks satisfaction in God. It's back to that passage where Paul learned to be content in Philippians 4. A little bit later in verse 19, it says, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So here's the deal. For, for the Christian, being content is more than a mere human endeavor to be stoic and noble. Being content is based on the sufficiency provided by God through Christ Jesus. Using godliness for gain, like the false teachers, deprives you of contentment. That would be ignoring the true gain, which provided is only provided by true godliness. True, true godliness produces contentment and spiritual riches. And people are truly rich when they are content with what they have. The richest person is the one who does not need anything else. That's the richest person. Now, you don't need anything else because you have all that you need in Christ. The richest person is the one who would say the secret of contentment is not like, uh, well, when, when asked of the secret of contentment, the Greek philosopher Epicurus replied, add not to a man's possessions, but take away from his desires. Add not to his possessions, but take away from his desires. That was the Greek definition of contentment. Or to say it another way, he who is, uh, let's see, he is richest who desires the least. He is richest who desires the least. Now again, that's Greek Stoic philosophy. There's good value in that, but it's not eternal if you don't insert Christ and godliness as the means in being content in God. I mean, this, this is simply said by the psalmist in Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I mean, this is what we're talking about, right? It's, it's not wanting more, but being completely content with what God has given. Oh, how we need to, to learn this truth today. Today, we, we seek contentment by having things, even good things, like I just want to get into a good school so I can get a good job. I just need to get married. I need to make more money. I need to buy a plot of land, and I need to have a kid or two. I need to build that that dream house. I need to put some more furniture in my home. I need my kids to look just right. I need to go on the dream vacation. I have to have a brand new car. I just need my kids to obey me right away. I need my kids to get into a good school. I need my kids to marry the right person, and it all starts over again. Everything that you wanted, you then want for your kids and you're in an endless vicious cycle of this is what we need in order to have contentment. No, it's not about the American dream, right? That's not what it's about. It's about godliness with contentment is great gain. Nothing else. 
You don't need anything else. If you have God, then you have enough. If you have his word, then you have all that you need. If you have Christ, then everything else is rubbish. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3. It's all rubbish, right? Is Christ enough? 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8, which I read earlier, says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times, you may abound in every good work. So if you're in Christ, you have all that you need. You have all grace, you have all sufficiency, you have all things for all times if you have God's grace equipping you to do every good work. All grace abounding in our lives has nothing to do with possessing more things, but rather trusting God's word and walking by faith. Well, the second truth that will help you experience great gain is this. Number two, acknowledge that what you have was given to you. Acknowledge that what you have was given to you. And look at verse seven. So for, you know, verse six, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Verse seven, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Simple enough, right? Your next blank says, for you brought nothing into this world. The first word actually here in verse seven in the original language is the word nothing. That means it's placed there for emphasis. It's saying essentially nothing you brought into this world. First Corinthians chapter four, verse seven, we read where it says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? It's just a reminder. Everything that you have was given to you by God. You, you came into this world with nothing. You know, God's blessed Lisa and I with five kids. I was there for all five births. They were all naked when they came out of the womb holding absolutely nothing in their hands. Right? You come into this world with absolutely nothing. They didn't come in with any college education money set aside. Right? They didn't come in with any inheritance whatsoever other than what God provides through their family. Right? So they came into this world with nothing. We just witnessed Judy's passing this week and she's leaving with nothing. Right? She left this world. You, you don't want your possessions in heaven, people. Stuff down here on earth is outdated. Right? In heaven, it is all that we need is presence, being in the presence of the Lord, right? So we come in with nothing, we leave with nothing, but you brought nothing into this world. And certainly this imagery would remind us of Job 1.21 when he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You say, yeah, well, maybe I came in to this world with nothing, but I've worked hard to get to where I am today which I would reply, yeah, and God gave you that ability. He gave you life and he gave you a brain and he gave you a hard work ethic. So you really don't have anything that you can pat yourself on the back with. It's all given to you by God. And just like you brought nothing in the world, your next blank, we're already talking about it. You can take nothing out of the world. You can't take it with you. My youth pastor, when I was a kid, used to say, have you ever seen a U-Haul behind a hearse? You know, they're heading to the graveyard to bury the, the, the deceased. Have you ever seen that carrying with them a U-Haul with all their possessions to take it with them to the graveyard to bury it with them? No, you don't ever see a U-Haul behind a hearse, 
right? We understand that Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 15, as he came, it says, as he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. Before Alexander the Great died, he said this, you know, great world conqueror, Greek culture. When he died, he said this, when I am dead, carry me forth on my bed with my hands not wrapped in cloth, but laid outside so all may see that they are empty. One commentator acknowledges this about Alexander the Great's request. Yes, those hands which once wielded the proudest scepter in the world, which once held the most victorious sword, which once were filled with silver and gold, with which once had power to save or sign away life, are now empty. Completely empty. The most powerful man, arguably, who ever lived, died with his hands empty. And our Lord has much to say about foolishness and the foolishness of pursuing temporal riches. As he tells us again in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaking in Matthew 6, 19 and 20, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth or rust can't destroy, thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your, good, you guys are memorizing scripture, I like it. That's where your heart is, it's where your treasure is. If your treasure's in temporal riches or possessions, that's where your heart is. If your treasure's in heaven, then that's where your heart is. Storing up for yourselves treasures on earth is like trying to make your car run on water instead of gasoline. It's like trying to fill up on crackers when the main course is about to be served. It's like staring at a picture of the beach when the ocean is just outside of your window. Wake up, right? Our life is but a vapor. It's a mist. We're here today and gone tomorrow. Don't make so much about this life and the comforts of this life. I I love John Piper and his book, Don't Waste Your Life. I was actually there in Tennessee in year 2000 where he had this incredible uh, passion conference and he got up and gave that famous illustration about, about the shell collection. Do you remember that? He was reading something out of the Reader's Digest and talking about this older couple who was gonna retire and spend the next 30 years living in Florida on a golf course where they're gonna play golf and buy big boats and build shell collections. And I just remember him saying, is that what you're going to say to God when you get to heaven? Like, God, look at my boat. God, look at my shells. You know, and it was a riveting message for me in my mid-20s just to be like, man, what am I doing with my life? You know, it's not about just gaining more things. What do I want my life to be about? What are you collecting? What are you treasuring? What are you living for? Jeremiah Burroughs, again, in the the rare jewel of Christian contentment, writes this, every comfort that the saints have in this world is an earnest penny compared to those eternal mercies that the Lord has provided for them. In other words, the comforts of this world are a mere penny compared to the eternal mercies of God. So do you want a few pennies? from what this world provides, are you finding eternal mercy in God by having that eternal perspective? You brought nothing in this world, you can take nothing with you. Again, no one's saying here, don't 
store up for the future and have an investment and be able to provide for yourself and your children. That's not what we're saying. We're just saying don't find your hope and your security and your value in those things. Find it in God. God will take care of those things. You be a hard worker, but you make sure that your faith is in God and that what you're really grasping is him and his presence in your life more than just the money that you have in the bank. And so the third truth that will help us experience great gain is this. Number three, a appreciate that the basic needs of life are enough. That's where the text takes us next in verse 8 where Paul says, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So we now see it's godliness is contentment. And of course, we need our basic needs matter. You can't live. And Paul lists those as food and clothing. And so your next blank again says, are you thankful for food? I mean, if that's all we really need, we need godliness and we need to be alive. In order to be alive, you have to have food and clothing. So we're being reminded, are you thankful for your food? Do do you take it for granted that you have food? Matthew 6, again, Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. In the first century, you know, it was much harder to have a, a meal prepared for you. So it was a daily dependence on life in order to eat day by day. They didn't have Costco, right? They didn't have big refrigerators and freezers where you just go and grab a frozen pizza out of the, out of the freezer and, and you're set for the evening. No, it, it's, like, it's like something that people worried about, which is why Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 6, 31 and following, therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So he's saying, hey, more important even than seeking those, those essential needs, food and clothing, seek first God and his presence and these needs that you have on earth, he will provide for you. I mean, I just think that as middle-class Americans, we lose focus on what we really have. And we think that somehow we're poor because we live in Los Angeles and you don't live in Beverly Hills. And so you think you're poor because you're up here in poor Santa Clarita. Or you live in Castaic because you can't cut it in Valencia. No, I'm just kidding. And so, you know, the idea is that you think you don't have enough, but we have more than we have. Listen to some of these world poverty statistics, all right? So in world poverty, just to kind of recorrect our, calibrate our thinking about what we have, the total percentage of the world population that lives on less than $2.50 a day, $2.50 a day, the total percentage of the world population that lives on $2.50 a day is 50%. 50% of the world lives on $2.50 or less, 50% of the world $2.50 or more. Which one are you in? You make more than 250 a day, so boom, you're already in the top 50%. Let me go on. The total percentage of people that live on less than $10 a day, 80%. 80% of the human beings created in the image of God who live on this planet live on less than $10 a day. Total number of children that die each day due to poverty, 22,000. 22,000 children a day. One of every 12 children dies before celebrating his or her fifth birthday. One of every 12. Total number of people in developing countries with inadequate access to water, 1.1 billion. 
you know, you read these statistics, and I know we want to be moved by the gospel. We want to be moved by reaching people with the gospel, but there are great needs all over this planet. And we're sitting here in Santa Clarita thinking, I just don't have enough because I don't have the perfect house or the perfect car or the perfect wardrobe or the perfect portfolio. Most of us spend more money on food in a week than the average person living in Uganda would spend on food in a whole year. I mean, just think about a couple, you've been out to eat a couple of times. We have as a family over the holidays, one week of our food, going out to a restaurant once or twice, eating at home, one week is more than most people spend on food for a whole year. And so hopefully we're just being reminded that, you know what? I'm so thankful that God provides food and water. I'm so thankful, your next blank, that God provides clothing your next blank again, because that's what verse 8 gets to. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. I mean, I've been on mission trips in other places in the world. Maybe you've been there. I've been to Mexico and Honduras and Brazil and Uganda and South Africa and Albania, Romania, Ukraine and Russia. I'm just listing some of the poorer countries where I've been out in the sticks, where I'm all of a sudden reminded, like, I'm so thankful I have plenty of food. And the clothes that I'm wearing, you know, typically when I'm out and about in some of those areas, particularly if we're going out into the bush, you know, you're putting on your older clothes, right? You don't walk out in the bush looking like this, you know? You're just like, okay, let me put on my oldest pair of jeans, my oldest shirt, my oldest pair of shoes, because they might get dirty. And, and you're walking around, and you're always like, well, this is like nicer than anything anybody else is wearing. And I'm not even content. I would consider this to be my oldest clothes. And the problem is that the more money that we have, the more complex that life can become. Food and clothing, food and shelter ought to be enough. It ought to be enough with these things. We ought to be content just just with our bare needs being met. I mean, I, I read one article which states this, quote, the richest man in the world lived at one time, uh, at one time he owned oil wells, refineries, tankers, and pipelines, also hotels, a life insurance company, a finance company, and aircraft companies. He surrounded his 700-acre estate with bodyguards, vicious dogs, steel bars, searchlights, bells, and sirens. In addition to being afraid of planes, ships, and crackpots, he feared disease, old age, helplessness, and death. He was lonely and gloomy and admitted that money could not buy happiness. Who am I talking about? Talking about Howard Hughes, one of the richest men of our time who had it all. He had everything that money could ever want, very successful in the business world, and yet he realized money cannot buy you happiness, and he died a miserable death. J.C. Ryle has this to say about money, quote, money in truth is one of the most unsatisfying of possessions. It takes away some cares, no doubt, but it brings with it quite as many cares as it takes away. There is trouble in the getting of it. There is anxiety in the keeping of it. There are temptations in the use of it. There is guilt in the abuse of it. There is sorrow in the losing of it. There is perplexity in the disposing of it. Two-thirds of all the strifes, quarrels, and lawsuits in the world arise from one simple cause, money. Nowhere does the Bible condemn 
having money or possessions, right? We're about to see that here in this passage. It doesn't condemn money in and of itself. It's the love of money. That's where we're going. But if God graciously provides our needs, are we thankful and satisfied and content in that? Maybe God has blessed you beyond those essential needs and he's blessed you so you could be a blessing to others. I mean, no vow of poverty is required to be a godly man or woman. Abraham, David, Solomon, they had loads of money. So what God does condemn, though, is the self-indulgent desire for money, which rises out of an absence of contentment in him and what he has provided for you. And so let me again ask the question this morning, are you content with food and clothing? Do you believe that godliness, verse 6, accompanied by food and clothing is great gain. It's just godliness in verse six, verse eight adds, you know, the food and clothing. You do have to have something to maintain life. But let me ask you today, are you content with food and clothing? Do you believe that that is enough? Are you longing for more earthly riches or heavenly ones? When you lay awake on your bed at night, do you think more about what you can get in this world or about what God promises in the next. Let's just be honest. When you're kind of daydreaming about life, are you thinking about, oh, then I can have this and I have this and when I retire, I'm gonna go here and do this and do this and that's kind of how I live my life, hoping on that great American dream just to keep getting greater or are, or, or are you constantly thinking, I just wanna be in heaven. I wanna be in the presence of the Lord. I'm so thankful for all that he's given me. I just wanna see what kind of a difference can I make for his kingdom? Is that what drives you? Jeremiah Burroughs, again, says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. What's he saying? Contentment is a state of the heart. Everybody in this room has a heart. And that means everybody in this room has the same access to contentment. Not about being rich or healthy or having a great family or being at a great church or a great school or having a great job. Those things don't all equal contentment. None of that's listed here. It's godliness with contentment is great gain. It is a frame of mind. And it's something that we've got to learn Learning the art of contentment in scripture is where God has us. And the good thing is it's free. I said it will cost you everything because you have to give up all your possessions in your heart, but it's free and accessible for all. That's exciting. There's not a single person. I, I could talk to you right now about, oh, we're going to take a great trip and it's going to cost you $10,000, but it'll be a state of the art uh, trip. And, you know, two thirds of you would be like, I'm out. I don't have 10K. But that's not what's being offered. What's being offered is available for all. You could be living on less than 250 a day, the poorest person in the world that we talked about. And you could still have contentment because it's found in Christ. The fourth truth that will help us experience great gain is this. Number four, avoid the dangers of longing for more money. Avoid the dangers of longing for more money. There are many dangers to wanting to have more money. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28, cautions us, he who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish 
like the green leaf. Jesus says it this way in the Sermon on the Mount again in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for he will either hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So we understand we got to make a choice here. It's not God and money equals contentment. You know, one, one of my kids years ago when I was walking through this passage with them, you know, it says godliness with contentment is great gain and with food and clothing you shall be content. And one of my kids added a third thing. My kid said with food, clothing and candy, you'll be content. And I'm just like, isn't that the state of our heart? It's always that one more thing we want to slip in there. Food, clothing and candy. If I had that, Dad, I think I would be content. You've been deceived, oh little one. You've been deceived. It will not bring contentment. But what is that for you in your life where you just say, if I just had, if I just had this, I would have contentment. Then if that's what you have to have, that's the master you're serving. Because you can't serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Candy, you know, is not money, but it's the money that buys the candy, whatever that desire might be. And so we see what we see here in verses 9 and 10, wrapping up the text. He actually gives us seven dangers of longing for more money. Let's look at them quickly here. The first one is falling into temptation. Because if, if food and clothing is not enough and you desire to be rich, you're going to most likely fall into temptation. Now notice it didn't say fall into sin, but you're going to be tempted to sin. So you're falling into temptation. That's a danger of wanting or longing for more money. Again, it's the, the idea that you'll, the rich, those who desire to be rich, will fall into temptation. The temptation is that money satisfies. That's the temptation. More money will satisfy. More money will pacify. And I remember doing some counseling with a young man in Texas about probably 15 years ago, and he was going through a hard time, and he was struggling to find contentment. So we're walking through what contentment is, and he said, I know what contentment is, but there's just something about when I go on, this is when Amazon Prime was like a new thing. He's like, when I go on Amazon and just buy something for myself that's brand new, I get a little rush. I get like a little rush, and it just makes me feel good. And he was addicted to shopping, of buying himself stuff, because that's the only place he could find contentment. And part of me was like, okay, I think I get what you're saying. You're kind of down. You want to get some more stuff. But is that good for your soul to start finding that that pleasure that you find is somehow going to be the answer to your deep, dark longing to find contentment? Of course not. But that's the temptation, right? The temptation is that we are distracted thinking that money can buy us happiness. That's why Proverbs chapter 30 verse 8 says, Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. So I love that. He's like, I don't want to be rich or poor, and I'll accept whatever you bring in my life. That's my portion in my cup because it's with you that I'll find ultimate contentment. Let's look at a second danger of longing for money that will lead not only to temptation, but B says getting caught in a snare. Getting caught into a snare. Look at the middle of verse 9. Again, those who desire to be rich not only fall into temptation, but into a snare. It's talking about like an animal getting caught in a trap. It looks so good, I had to have the cheese, the mouse set, right? And it gets into the mouse trap. I gotta have it. Proverbs 22, seven, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave to the lender. So we just gotta be reminded that beware of what it's gonna cost you. The third danger of longing 
for riches or money would be this, having foolish and harmful desires. Again, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare. And then it says, into many senseless and harmful desires. We already see here, he's building out a theology of the desire of riches and saying, the desire to be rich is gonna lead you to temptation. It's gonna lead you into a trap. It's gonna lead you into many senseless and harmful desires. Remember, money can be a blessing, but money can also give you a lot of options. And sometimes those options that money gives you access to lead you to foolishness and to harm. And it leads you to live in a life that's not filled with wisdom and sobriety. It can lead to alcohol and drugs and promiscuity and illicit desires that all of a sudden you have everything at your fingertips. Proverbs 28, verse 20, a faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. A fourth danger of longing for money is D in your outline, being plunged into ruin and destruction. Like at the end of verse nine, there's temptation, there's traps or snares, senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. This can lead to crime. It can lead to prison. It can lead to great debt. It's even worse than that. The wholehearted pursuit of material wealth ultimately leads to one ruining their own life. To plunge means to sink or submerge or to drag to the bottom. And the pursuit of riches ultimately drowns people in a sea of greediness. I mean, one of my biggest fears whenever I've been in Africa on the safari, I went to a crocodile farm in Malawi one time and um, it's pretty interesting just seeing these thousands of crocodiles. And all of a sudden, they start feeding the crocodiles, and they just grab that food and, and sometimes, by instinct, take it to the bottom. And you know how they will roll on the bottom of squelching the life out of, out of, uh, out of their prey. And I, and I just think that's what riches can do. It's just going to drag you to the bottom. You know, you think that it's going to be great, and it drags you into a sea of greediness. Ruin here at the end of verse 9 is often used of the body, though it can refer to more than that. Destruction here, the word destruction usually refers to the eternal demise of the soul. So these two terms together at the end of verse 9 are saying that your body will be ruined and your soul will be destroyed. And so they paint together a picture of the total devastation of both body and soul. Body and, soul. and we see this you know, in the parable of the soils where Jesus said in Matthew 13, 22, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And so we understand, again, that there's great destruction and ruin that you're plunged into if your desire is for riches. The fifth danger of longing for money, E, in your outline is it's becoming the root of all sorts of evil. And that's an important distinction that we've made a few times. It's the love of money. And we're not saying money itself, right? It's money itself is an is a inanimate object that can provide access to good and evil, but it, the desire or the want or the longing for, or as it says in verse 10, the love, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. The scripture records many tragic examples of those who were destroyed by the love of money. 
There was Achan in Joshua 7 who buried forbidden treasure under his tent. He and his family died. There was Ahab who wanted Naboth's vineyard in 1 Kings 21 and later Ahab and his wife Jezebel died. There was Gehazi who deceitfully received payment from Naaman the leper in 2 Kings 5 and he was then struck with leprosy. There was Judas who betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver and he later hanged himself. All these are examples of people. They had to have the money and it ruined them, right? It, it brought about much evil. And it, there, it goes on. The next danger of longing for money is F, causing you to wander from the faith. It talks about how it's the root, the love of money, it's the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. It's saying that money's a test. It's a test to find out if you're truly saved or not. How you handle money helps demonstrate what's really going on in your heart. And there were disciples who went away. We talked about Judas. How about Demas? Remember Demas, the fair-weather disciple mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10? It says, look over there. Look, we're just one chapter away. 2 Timothy Chapter 4, verse 10, what does it say about Demas? For Demas, in love with this present world. That's what happened to him. He's in love with this present world, verse 10. And so he ended up being a false disciple, right? Apparently, he, he departed from the faith. It happens to people all the time. You, you think they're saved, and all of a sudden, they have access to money or what money can buy them. And they, in, in essence, sell their soul to the devil for the love of money. Again, back to the parable of those who long for riches. They get choked out by the thorns of the world. It looks good, and then it ends up choking out our life. And it demonstrates maybe you were never saved all along. The seventh danger of longing for money is that it is piercing yourself with many griefs or many pangs, as this verse says. They've wandered away from the faith and they found a wonderful life and lived happily ever after. Is that what it says? No. They wandered away from their faith and it just got worse. They're piercing themselves with many griefs, many pangs. That's what the word means. Isn't that ironic? That the sorrow and the pain, they thought that the love for money and their search for pleasure would lead to happiness, but instead they skewer their own souls. They seek comfort and riches, but they stab themselves with heartache and pain. People who are given over to the love of money pursue safety in their wealth, but they puncture their own hearts with misery and agony. No amount of money will make up for, uh, for will, will give you that contentment, right? There's no amount. John D. Rockefeller once said, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Cornelius Vanderbilt added, the care of millions is too great a load. There is no pleasure in it. Millionaire John Jacob Astor described himself as the most miserable man on earth. Despite his wealth, Henry Ford once remarked, I was happier doing a mechanic's work. Again, Rockefeller commented, the poorest man I know is the man who has nothing but money. Right? The love of money and contentment are mutually exclusive. Both cannot coexist in the same heart. 
Jesus again said, you can't serve the two masters. You love one and hate the other. You cannot serve both God and money. As a Roman proverb put it, money is like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. Proverbs 23 verse 4, do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. Pretty strong. A lot of us sit around thinking about how can I add a side business? How can I build my portfolio? How can I build my investments? And I'm not saying don't do that. I'm just saying if the motive is simply because I have to have my security and my contentment in gaining more, the scripture says don't weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. Something that we have to check, right? Each one of us in our own hearts about how to find that balance of loving God with what we have and working hard and yet not finding our joy and contentment ultimately in possessions but in Christ. And so we've seen this morning from this passage that true contentment is not found in earthly riches but in heavenly ones. And we do not gain happiness by looking at our circumstances but by looking to Christ. And it is godliness accompanied by contentment that provides the means of great gain. Adam, thanks a lot for this sermon. I feel really convicted right now and just like a chump. Well, let me help you. All right, let me help you. Because at the end of Jeremiah Burroughs' book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, he writes the last two chapters of that book, which addresses the issue of attaining contentment. And he gives no less than 22 ways in these two chapters of ways that you can find contentment. And you can be thankful. I'm only going to give you five of them. You can be thankful for that. 22 ways to find contentment. Here's five. You see it there in the take-home section of your outline. Five considerations to contain, uh, attain contentment. Number one, consider the abundance of God's mercy and the absence of eternal punishment. What's he saying? He's saying just preach the gospel to yourself. Every moment of every day, contentment is found in Christ, which means it's found in the gospel, that you've received the mercy of God, that if you've repented of your sins and you've received God's amazing grace, I can be content in the gospel. I can be content in the fact that I don't have to suffer eternal punishment. So even when my investment doesn't go well and the business tanks and life doesn't turn out like I thought, I don't have to lose my contentment. My contentment is found in Christ. And in the, 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 the truth of salvation being secured for my soul. And so consider that. There's an abundance of God's mercy for your soul this very morning. And there's the absence of eternal punishment for you if you're in Christ. That ought to make us content. Number two, consider the encouragement to seek the things that are above where Christ is. So the problem is we're seeking things that are below. And scripture reminds us to keep seeking things that are above. If you keep looking below, you're not going to be content. You're just not. You're going to compare everything to everybody and you'll never find it. But if you keep your eyes on Christ, as Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says, therefore, having been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. In that part of the passage in the book, he talks about how this might be the reason that Adam and Eve did not recognize their own nakedness before the fall. 
And he goes into this explanation of the reason that Adam and Eve, because you never thought about why, why, why did they all of a sudden think they, about themselves being naked after sin? Because before sin entered the world, they had perfect communion with God. And because their eyes and their focus was always on God, they didn't even recognize the fact that they were naked. He just goes on to say the, the reason that we are so troubled with our nakedness, with any wants that we have, is because we converse so little with God. A heavenly conversation is the way to contentment. That's what Burroughs says. Number three, consider all the helps in the world as little good unless we get a good temper within our hearts. So again, consider all the helps in the world, all the comforts of the world as little good unless we get a good temper within our hearts. He talks about the fact that you can never make a ship steady in the water by propping it up on the outside. Remember that? When you were a little kid and you would play with little boats, Okay, I'm going to say it, maybe in the bathtub or you're out in the pool and you're trying to get this boat to steady and you keep holding it up on either side and just when you take your hands off, what happens? Flips over. Put your hands off, it goes flips over. So he makes the argument that the way to steady a ship is to balance it from the inside. There's how to be internal balance inside the ship. You can't steady it on the outside. It's got to be steady on the inside. And so he goes on to talk about you have to have a good temper, a good disposition, a good contentment inside of you. And if you have that inside of you, no matter what kind of raging river your ship goes across, it never turns over because you're balanced from within. Number four, consider the creatures that suffer for us. Why should we not be willing to suffer in order to be serviceable to God? And he talks about, obviously, in that time, how they would use animals more than we tend to do today in our particular uh, culture, but they would use creatures such as horses and cows and oxen to travel and to do work around the farm and, and to do what they needed to do. And sometimes those creatures go through sacrifice and suffering in order to help the person accomplish what they want. And he's using that illustration to say, well, why shouldn't we be willing to face great suffering because we want to be serviceable to God? So I might go through some discomfort so that I can learn and grow of what my true need is, which glorifies God more than if I was eating out of a silver spoon my whole life. And so he's saying that, look, if animals suffer to serve us, there's times we need to suffer in order to be serviceable to God. In other words, suffering's a good thing. Being uncomfortable can be a good thing. You don't need all, everything fixed all the time or you wouldn't depend on God. Last, consider that we have but a little time in this world. So the last thing he talks about that, that I'm boiling down 22 into five, but he's just saying, hey, just realize that life is short. You know, he, he writes, quote, if you are godly, you will never suffer except in this world. Shut your eyes and as soon, uh, and soon another life is come. As that martyr said to his fellow martyr, do not shut your eyes, he said, and in the next time they are opened, you shall be in another world. So he's going on just to say, we're just here for a little while. And whatever discontentment you find, there will be no discontentment in heaven. And so even though we continue to struggle with that, he's just saying, just here for a little while. Right? We're just like the dew on the grass that's gone when the sun reaches its peak. And if we can learn today how short life is, it's a reminder that 
we find our joy and contentment not in this life anyway, but in God. And so will you learn today the art of Christian contentment? Will you continue to look to Christ or will you be swept away by the love of money or by something else that this world has to offer? Or will you believe and live this truth that godliness with contentment is great gain? It's as simple as that. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for the opportunity to be challenged in my own heart as I know my own struggles with these things as each one of us here may not necessarily be money that we think of like that, but it's what money can buy or certainly the desires that we have to have life go a certain way. And we look for contentment with comfort and security on earth instead of finding our comfort and security only given through the gospel and the promises afforded to us through Christ. And so I pray that we would truly take a look within our own hearts and and just do some reflection this last day of the year about what kind of things have made us happy throughout the year and what are we thinking about going into the new year that would help us find the art of true Christian contentment and what we don't need is to add more things to our lives in the sense of possessions, but what we do do need to focus on maybe this morning is just taking away desires. I, I don't need that. I don't have to have that. God, would you help us to find that godliness, pursuing you, and to be happy about that, excited about that, encouraged by that, truly satisfied in you, that it's that godliness with contentment that brings us great gain. We don't want to gain a lot of stuff. We don't want to gain a perfect life on earth because we've already been given a perfect life in Christ, an abundant life that leads to heaven. And so may we find that joy, that contentment in Christ, in your word, and in living for you in the ways that we've been challenged to think about this morning. Be glorified in our hearts and lives today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.